where we're really short-sighted is how we schedule our patients. And I think navigating your schedule, fitting these patients in, but also touching on these points at your new patient appointment has been key for me. I think patient education's um, truly the biggest thing that helps uh, one retain and then rapid follow-up. 1,300 egg retrievals in a single year while seeing 50 to 60 new patients a month. Oh, that's it. Dr. Rui Gilani is an operational mastermind in my view, and you're going to see why as we walk through this together. She's been on the show three, maybe four times now. You might be thinking she was just on the show. She was. We talked about the changing dynamics in fertility patient relations, how Dr. Gilani is at the forefront of that and how it's been a major new patient recruitment generator for her. And that episode is really important to listen to in order to be able to fully understand this one. So we did that episode and I had mistitled it because I meant to say the REI that did more retrievals than anyone else in 2022. When we titled it, I left off the year by accident. But even if I hadn't left it off by accident, I also made an assumption that I, I, assume that 1300 is the most. We know what happens when we assume there may be another doctor that has done more than that. I don't know if if one provider has done that without other providers under him or her. I don't know if, if Dr. Rob Kiltz or anyone else is. Either way, it's orders of magnitude more than most folks are doing. And people were very curious as to how she does that. So today we go through the workflow, we go through the virtual consults, we go through the testing, we go through the pre-steps that people do with the financial counselor before their first appointment. We go through the scheduling of the follow-up appointment before the workup and the tests are done. We go through the role of her scribes. We go through rules for pivotal touch points that Dr. Gilani feels are absolutely necessary for good patient care. And from my experience, what are also very useful in retaining patients and converting them to treatment. We go over rules for your scheduling team so that they can maximize the use in the way that Dr. Gilani has. And I asked Dr. Gilani what she views as the biggest bottleneck to stop her from seeing even more patients, that if those bottlenecks were removed, for you, would you be doing 1,300 retrievals? If they were removed for her, would she be doing 3,000, 4,000, 5,000? I challenge as much as I can about how do you know that the standard of care isn't sacrificed? I'm not a clinician, so I can't totally judge, but that's why I think the first episode with Dr. Gilani, and by the first one, I mean the one that came out in January of 2023 or December of 2022 is necessary to fully understand because this is someone that really wants to provide that attention to her patients. Some of you are going to listen to this episode and say, I already knew that. Shut up, will you? Just listen to the episode and pick out one thing that you didn't know before you listened to it. Dr. Gilani is very generous with the processes that she shares with you. This is not vague. This is not high-level stuff. This is very detailed, and there's almost certainly something that you hadn't considered or hadn't seen applied in that way. So enjoy this episode with one of the rising stars of clinical operations in your field, Dr. Rui Gilani. Dr. Gilani, Rui, welcome back to Inside Reproductive Health again. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Thank you for coming back on after recording another episode probably a month or so ago, not 
not too long ago. It was a very popular one. I got a lot of text messages. So did you got a lot of emails and I have to take some culpability for being kind of a lousy interviewer because it was only after we stopped recording that I was like, oh, we started talking about how many retrievals that you actually did in last year. And you said, 1300 and i said holy crow I, I i said did you not say that in the interview because you didn't want to say it or because i didn't ask you and you're like because you didn't ask me i thought crap like crap like this that's this i did something similar with amy avazade where i had to have her back on where i'm asking her a whole bunch of questions during the show and then afterwards i'm thinking oh that was the that was the thing that i was circling around and couldn't figure out because I didn't ask bluntly enough or didn't even think to do that. So, you know, but I at least got it into the title of the episode and, uh, and people became really interested. And and I had said that, uh, I suspect that was the most, I I said the the REI who did the most, I made an assumption. Uh, I don't have, I don't have hard data. I, I I think it could be the most, it could be the case that Dr. Kiltz, who's been on the show or someone else has done more, but I, I, think that for one person without other providers it it very likely could be if not you are on a very short list and it is orders of magnitude more than the average person and so people are fascinated about how it actually gets done so last time we were talking about the patient acquisition and patient relations funnel that led to it this time i want to talk more about the operation side of, of how this even happens so can like let's start with maybe just a a summary of the growth if, if 1300 was 2022 what did the lead up to that look like what were the previous year's volumes mm-hmm. always a couple hundred so i think the year before was closer to 6 to 8 um 100 i think around 600 between 6 to 8 i'm not quite sure i actually didn't keep um, tabs on it. This is just more of a personal guard. It's not necessarily um, a number. It wasn't like, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to grow to. It just became what it became as my presence grew and my social media grew. Um, and then it came to light when I was looking at how many cycles do I do a month. Then I started adding it last year and I was like, oh, wow, that's going to equate to over a thousand. So it wasn't intentional. Um, I could be, I think close to a thousand the year before closer to, it grew every year, uh, proportionally. So I'm hoping it continues to grow as I kind of learn how to manage, like you were saying, my staff, my support staff, my patients, and kind of figure out things that work for me. You must be figuring it out to some degree. If you nearly doubled from 2021 to 2022 without it being explicit goal it was just happening from the things we talked about in the last episode the new patient acquisition presence that you have from having such a presence in social media and a work ethic that we also talked about in that episode of that you like to work and you like to do it a lot so you you must be figuring some of it out on the operation side how many new patients is that coming from like if you're if you're doing that many retrievals how many new patients are you seeing i see between 50 to 60 news a month that's also more than the average 
that's also more than the average doctor. So you're, you're, and it's very common to see when you do see somebody seeing a lot of new patients, they very often have a lower IVF conversion rate because they'll see a lot of new patients one month and then they'll have to block off more of their schedule in the next month to do IVF and vice versa. So how can you see that many new patients and do that many retrievals? I think when I was sitting on the patient side, it would be seeing your doctor doing a workup, then waiting on the doctor's schedule for your next step. Um, I think educating your patients on your next steps, understanding what they're, once again, going back to long-term, short-term goals are, and also making sure at their new patient appointment, they have their next steps appointment plugged in instead of do your workup, then call for your appointment, then you really prolong. I think where we're really short-sighted is how we schedule our patients. And I think navigating your schedule, fitting these patients in, but also touching on these points at your new patient appointment has been key for me. I think patient education's um, truly the biggest thing that helps uh, one retain and then rapid follow-up. So very often people have the patient go back, do the workup, do the test, and then schedule the appointment because they don't want to fill a slot and then have the patient not having done those things. So is how do you have patients in for a follow-up and make sure that they have what's necessary for the follow-up? So at your first appointment, right, most, most patient cycles are very predictable. These patients have been tracking their cycle, doing OPKs. So at that appointment, you say, okay, once your next period due, okay, well, this is when you're going to come in. Okay, this is when we do the saline. Okay, tandemly, we're going to do a semen analysis. Okay, your next anticipated period is this. Let's regroup before this date to then put a treatment plan in place. So your new patient appointment, you're leaving with all of your next steps as opposed to call with your period. Oh, your office didn't answer. Oh, then I was out of town. Oh, this, right? It becomes, oh, 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 frustrations. And then what happens? Delay in treatment or you leave the clinic. Are you doing AMH and FSH during that time as well? Or is that happening either before or at a different time? At that time, at your new patient workup. How often do you have to reschedule patients because they booked that follow-up, but then they haven't done all of those things? Very rarely. Most of the patients are the ones that are mandated, like in uh, managed care, where you have to do X, Y, and Z. Your pap smear wasn't here. We're not going to approve your diagnostics. But majority of patients, no, they're, you know, these patients want next steps. They want a plan. They don't that wishy-washy approach, I feel like, leaves them very lost. Um, and then that's when you get, well, I didn't call. Something got in the way. Now you're concise. This is what you're going to do. This is when we're going to regroup. And this is when you get your next steps. You're saying the majority of cancellations come from those that are mandated because they have something else that they have to qualify for? Correct. Correct. If, if there's cancellations or reasons why the system may not work, are cases of managed care where insurance didn't give authorization for testing or they were missing something before they needed testing. Um, but otherwise, most of these patients will follow through. When you say very few cancellations, ballpark, are we talking less than 5%, less than 25%? What are we, what are we talking for? Less, less than, than less than 5 to 10%. Wow. So that, so that is, that is a small number. At what point do they talk to the financial counselor? 
even before they see us. So they get a verification of benefits before their new patient appointment. That also helps set the stage for us and them as to what they're walking into because a piece of their big pie and decision-making is what is this going to cost me? Can I come in for testing? Do I need to do additional testing with my OB-GYN before I come see you? This is really interesting because we've approached this in different ways by recommending how people answer the question, how much does IVF cost? And very often if people at, when, when people are calling and asking how much does IVF cost, the answer that they get is not one that they're going to be satisfied with no matter how you answer. Even if you give them well, our base cycle price is $13,000. If they need donor gametes, if they need a gestational carrier, if they're going to have to do multi-cycle, it's going to be way more than that. And then you've price anchored them at a place where they are totally uh, unprepared for when they see the actual numbers. Or if they just need timed intercourse, then you've anchored them at a price of something that made them afraid to even come in for the first consult. And so we often direct people to to come in for that first consult and and then determine the financial course of action. So what's that like if they're meeting with a financial counselor before they come in for their first visit? Most of that appointment is just a rundown of what's covered, what's not covered. And I think it helps them, puts them at ease, like, okay, I'm going to talk to the doctor and then I'll start with testing. And most insurance companies will cover diagnostics. I think it's the treatment where what you're talking about really opens Pandora's box as to, well, what am I doing? Am I picking and choosing? And I think um, writing that narrative with your patient or helping them understand that narrative is important. So I counsel my patients that fertility and IVF and time intercourse is not like any other type of medicine. It's not like you have high blood pressure, you do X, Y, and Z, and it will cure, Right everyone's treatment plan is very different and it's based on your unique situation um, and your unique treatment plan. So these calls at the financial navigators who are not medical at all give you is to give you a ballpark estimate of what it would be if you did X, Y, or Z. From that point on, we'll understand and see what add-ons you may or may not need. Um, I also counsel them, your first cycle is your most basic cycle, but it's also your most diagnostic cycle. We understand a lot about what's going on, what's causing your infertility, what's causing you, us not to get pregnant or not to stay pregnant. So from that point on, you will typically expect me to do my add-ons and recommend further treatment. Most of my patients from the get-go, if you look at, I actually did this post on age and how many cycles most couples need. And I refer and I reference that post a lot. And I say, depending on you guys and your long-term and short-term goals, you will see in this that no one is one and done. Could you be one and done? Maybe, but that probability is very low. So if you are in a self-paced state, if you are looking for a baby now and a baby in the future, most couples will end up doing a multi-cycle plan. So the financial counselors are talking about those ballpark options before the first visit? The financial counselors are giving them a gist of their insurance benefits of what's covered, what's not covered. And then when we put a treatment plan in place, then they'll reach out with the specifics. Okay. And and then they're reconnected with the financial counselor Correct. at that point? When practices are really busy, that can determine where they put 
different requirements for the patients. In other words, if we have a practice with a 10-week wait list for the docs like many people had in early 2022, late 2021, then we can put all we can put everything in the front of the patient journey, meaning that even before someone's able to schedule, we can have them fill out their new patient forms, set up an account in the portal, even do their testing. And if patients if practices have only a week or two wait list, then there's less that they are usually able to ask the patient to do before that first visit. With you doing so much and you finding that doing the doing the workups before the follow-up and schedule, but scheduling the follow-up before the workups are actually done, even though it takes place after why not do the testing even before that first visit? A couple of reasons. I think insurance won't cover it, but if you have testing done um, prior to an official consult with the physician, too, it's scary to see these results, right? Ultimately, if you practice good medicine, good patient care, as Angie Belto says, everything else follows. So it's never, for me, kind of taking it back to why we're here, it was never do 1,200 cycles to be the most, right? It was practice good medicine and everything else kind of rolls in. So as a patient, when you're drawing your AMH, when you're getting your partner semen analysis, when you're checking your tubes and you see all these things rolling at you, it's very scary to interpret. It's very scary to understand. So I think not knowing what you're doing or testing um, and then getting these results without having a provider following it is intimidating, Uh, for me as a patient. So getting in that console, understanding what you're testing, why you're testing, what they mean briefly helps set the stage for saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to see my doctor for follow-up. We do, I mean, like most clinics, we do offer our pulse testing to get the pulse of your fertility without seeing Dr. Jelani or anybody where you can come in and check your AMH, your sperm, an ultrasound, and that's followed up with a 15-minute quick consult to go over your results. Uh, but oftentimes, those patients do convert to actual patients saying, okay, I touched on this, but I want to learn more. I want to know more. So I guess whatever comes first, a little bit of it's mandated by insurance, a little bit of it's mandated by, you know, based off of what patient comfort is. Are you at both, you personally, are you at both the new visit and the follow-up? Yes. Some people use a advanced practice provider at one or the other. You are doing so many new patient visits and so many retrievals. How are you able to be at both? And and why have you not decided to have an APP do one of those, or at least up to this point? We do have APPs that help with the overflow. And if need be, when I go on vacation, when I'm out, um, my patients have my number and I connect with them even before they get to that follow-up most of the time. I would say 70 to 80% of the time I connect with the patient even before they get to that follow-up appointment. Um, it's, I, I think that it's important to have that personal touch. Um, it builds trust and it also, no one wants to wait for treatment, right? You wanted a baby yesterday. Um, so as soon as the workup's done, I try to touch base with my patients. Um, as soon as their retrieval's done, I try to touch base with my patients to understand and help them understand what their next steps are from that point. 
Do you work with one APP or, or two that are part of your team, or do you do you all cycle through the different APPs in the group? It, it's by region. So all the Chicago APPs will see my patients, Angie's, Loudon's, as they overflow. Now, how much support do you have there in Chicago from APP? How many APPs are in the Chicago region? We have, Stacy four. Four. How many IVF coordinators do you use? Oh, a lot. <laughs> we have, I think, 10, eight, between 8 to 10. For the group or for yourself? For the group. So I once met someone from a group on the West Coast, large group, did a, many of the providers did many cycles, six, seven, eight hundred. And uh, the person there told me that the providers doing the most at this practice had 15 IVF coordinators each. How many do you ha- have for just you? We practice as one big entity, so they are familiar with all of our patients. So they're all our IVF. So it's split in IVF coordinators and then clinical nurses. So the IVF just manages IVF, and then the clinical nurses manage the clinic aspect of it. What are the pros and cons to doing it each way? What's the pro to having it for everyone and everyone's using all of the same IVF coordinators versus a provider having their own specific IVF coordinator or team? I think it helps break down silos because, right, you're in a very busy big center. We're a very busy practice um, with high volume. And it's harder for your ancillary staff to learn than my way and then Angie's way and then Loudon's way. So I think when you're unified as a big practice, it really helps them understand one, that you're one, one, that there's one way, and it really breaks down silos. They can cross cover um, each other. They understand all of us. They're comfortable with all of us. Um, I like it. Does it unify the practice more? Like, is it more causative of unifying the practice as opposed to being a product of it? Because I think of some groups that we worked with, not as large as yours, but you wouldn't even know that the partners were in business together in some cases. It is not the practice's nurse. It is that doctor's nurse. And everybody knows it. And they let you know it. And uh, their processes for each provider are very different. Does having all of the providers use the same staff and use the same advanced practice providers, does that make you get on the same page with Dr. Loudon and Dr. Beltzos more? Yeah, I think so, right? Because you want to be one standing front. It's like having two parents. You don't want to say opposite things. So it unifies us and helps us um, have a great relationship, but also then creates less confusion. And then loyalty and commitment they have to all of us equally. How many of these folks are you giving your, uh, and, and by folks, I mean patients, how many patients are you giving your cell phone number to? All of them. Every single one. How often do you get a phone call or a text message? Not that often. And why not? Because I think people really respect it. And I think it's not reactive, right? It's more proactive. When do you get insane like portal messages or upset patients? Is when you can't get in touch with them. They have a simple question that's not answered and they're frustrated. But if from the get-go they know this is where you reach me, this is where you reach a nurse, this is what I help with, you're, you're setting expectations, then they don't usually bother you for stuff that they know you don't, you can't control. 
So you're seeing over the course of the year five, probably 600 or so, maybe somewhere between six and 700 new people. You're giving every single one of them your cell phone number. How many a month do you think you get a text message or a phone call from? Most people don't call. Text, text here and there a lot. Is it here or there? Or is it a lot? My definition of a lot may be very different than other people's definition. Your definition of a lot is probably way more than my definition of a lot. Probably. How many? How, how much texting or how many? How many patients text you in a given month? Do you think? I I talk to all my patients on text. How do you keep that streamlined with 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 what the care team needs to know? I, I have a scribe that I think that is my secret tool. If anyone wants to know, um, I scribe all of my text messages into my notes and send them as orders to the nurses. That is like my right hand. How? Um, I send her. So I'll, I'll talk to a patient. So I'll text saying, Hey, are you available? Your retrieval was yesterday. Um, this is what the results are. And we want to, let's talk about next steps. So I'll, we'll hop on a call or FaceTime or Zoom, Zoom usually. We do a quick call. That is a consult, converts into a treatment plan and order, which my scribe helps me translate to and sends it to the nurse. I, I don't want to put your scribe out of a job, but I'm going to have Dr. Ravi Gada on the show later in the season. And we're going to talk about chat GPT and talking about the different applications for this new open platform, artificial intelligence, and how different people are using it now and how they may be able to use it. And one of those is going to have to do with, I don't, I don't think we're going to see medical scribes in the yeah. future. I don't think we're going to see medical translators in the future. I don't know how far off, and I'm going to leave that topic to speculate with Dr. Gata, but it, it makes me think of what we're really talking about is access to care. And you are doing so many more retrievals and cycles than the average person, partly because of the operational systems that you have in place. And then it'll become, well, how much can we really scale that when we take these already efficient operational systems and are able to automate it or reduce steps because of some of the new AI technology that, that's 100%. coming out? You're speaking my language. I want to hear that episode. I, I literally was like, that would be the next step because all of this you can automate it, right? That's truly, you want to know, I think that the biggest part about how you get busy and stay busy like this is patient intervention at the most appropriate time. When when does a patient want to hear from their doctor, right? It's crucial after their new appointment for next steps, post-retrieval, post-failed cycles, um, miscarriages. So as soon as you identify these key pivotal points and automate it, AI them, um, I think everyone can do these cycles. So your scribe is taking these conversations, putting it in the EMR, putting it with the, the patient's records. Is that, but then I imagine that I, when we do interviews, for example, I don't do the screening interviews for candidates. My HR folks do that. But I look at their notes, and even when they leave good notes, I often have questions. How are, what gaps are happening when you, there's conversations that you're having with patients and then the care team is reading through the notes afterward? 
my scribes on my calls um, with me. So it's very easy for her to translate it. Now, if I'm training a new scribe, if they're newer and they're not as familiar with my terminology and my protocols and my next steps, then you see that, that little discrepancy. But also then knowing that the nurses can reach out to you if they're confused, I think really helps, right? That fear factor of like, oh gosh, I don't want to ask the doctor because then they're going to think I'm stupid. Like just eliminate that. And they know like it's open door. Text me, call me whenever. If you're confused, come out, come ask me, then I'll explain it to you as opposed to just second guessing or not doing it. And I think that really helps. How often are the nurses contacting you for things like that? Uh, my nurses talk to me all the time. That, that I, will admit, I talk to them constantly. So anybody that's listening to this episode, they have to listen to the other episode too because they go hand in hand. You won't fully understand the context of this conversation if you don't if you haven't heard the other conversation. Your your work ethic, you're constantly communicating, and uh, in order to support an operational system like the one we're talking about today. Uh, it, has to be based in something like that, at least for, for this kind of volume. So when you, when you went from maybe six to 800 retrievals in 2021 to about 1300 in 2022, you weren't sitting on your hands in 2021. You were busy as heck. What got eliminated or automated or delegated that allowed you to scale? I think figuring out what one's crucial. When do you touch base with your patients? What are these pivotal points of decision-making? Um, intervening sooner than later, right? It's moving up patients. Like you said, I bet you anyone listening or any fertility clinic has a wait list of at least a month. So one of the things that I do and I'm really good about is saying, okay, well, if I'm booking out until March, that means these patients also who wanted to be pregnant yesterday don't want to wait till March, but they're waiting for March because of me, because of my schedule, my limitations, right? Um, but if I have an opportunity, like Tuesday, I finish cases early. Hey, I have four hours where I'm not doing anything. Hey, new patient call center, can you pull up these people who are ready to be seen or who want to be seen earlier? Just kind of owning your schedule and really, really thinking about what is that patient feeling. Um, I think I really understood that when our hands were tied, right? Like what happened in 20, from 2019 to 2021 was the world changed. Um, most, of the th most of the reason I started understanding this is because a lot of the noise was cut out. You couldn't really go anywhere or do anything. Um, so then I started saying, okay, well, let's start moving patients up. Let's start understanding what they want. We don't know what the future holds. Let's understand what your future where you want, right? Um, egg freezing patients who now can't go out on dates because everyone's masked and distancing. What does that look like for you? So just, I think those three years were really pivotal in understanding how to practice, um, practice smarter. I want to talk to you about Tetrising your schedule like that. But I also want to ask about the pivotal touch points. Every patient is different. There's so many different considerations of what might be pivotal to a particular patient. But if I'm putting you on the spot and having you think of patterns of these, these are the characteristics of a touch point that I need to have and when, what are the common patterns? Post-retrieval, no one knows their next steps. As a hundred times as you may have told them, you don't understand them, you forget you change your mind. I think that's key. 
positive pregnancy, negative pregnancy, miscarriage, right? You want to celebrate their wins, their losses, their tough times. I wanted someone to celebrate all of those with me. So always reach out to my patients. No matter what that test result shows, they will get a text or a call from me that day. Um, key. PGT. I don't understand half of the numbers and letters that come out. I highly doubt any of my patients. They're super confused as what those mean. Always reach out. To have to wait for your doctor post-retrieval, then post-PGT, then for FET is like three to four months of time that no one has. So I'm very intrigued by this um, system that you're talking about with Ravi, but I really think AI eventually for Right now, I use my notes, my scribe, my ancillary support staff to help me as reminders to when to call, who to call, and um, where to call. But I would love to see how AI can interface with this and help us recognize these. Okay, this is where you need to intervene and when. Do you have a workflow system for yourself other than the EMR? Do you use like a project management system like Asana or or do you use any kind of CRM like a Salesforce or a HubSpot? What are you using? I do. Um, Jared Robbins will tell you I'm the most organized, disorganized person ever. <laughs> I make lists every day. I have a list. I'm old fashioned or I'm too old. Um, I write down all my day ones, my day sevens to calls. I have ridiculous amounts of paper and pens right next to me with check boxes. Um, I call these patients on a daily basis. I've been meaning to try EndNote. I heard it's fantastic and it's searchable. Uh, just haven't gotten around to it. So you're using old fashioned pen and paper to remember when to, I mean, of course you have your scribes that remind you, but you're not, you don't have like a ping in the EMR for contact this patient at, at this time after their retrieval. Of these 1300 folks, how many of them are you contacting after retrieval? All of them. Every single one? Every single one. Yeah. So one, that's probably, that's, partly why you are that you convert so well again you have to listen to the first conversation or, or else a lot of you'll you won't get all of this one because you you have to build the lead up in the base and set the expectations to have something this efficient long before you can actually have people go through something so efficient they've got to be prepared for it that's what the first conversation is about but also touch points are the number one thing that get people to uh, make a decision that when they want to make the decision, but they're just afraid, they're just, they, they don't know what to do, or they don't feel like, well, why would I go back there if nobody cared after I, I talked to them that last time? And so we often try to help people automate that, that conversion by uh, giving them a workflow. And it's a ton of work if it's not it's a ton of work when you're trying to replicate it with medical assistants, when you're trying to replicate it with nurses, when you're trying to make it a workflow in the EMR or, or the project management system or the CRM, and you're just doing it for every single one of them. Yeah. Trying to, uh, the most organized disorganized person are how many virtual consults are you still are, are, you, are you doing some people are doing a hundred percent almost for new visits some people are they're they're straight up back to 2019 no virtual consults and a lot of people are somewhere in between what is it for you 
all virtual. So efficient. Mm-hmm. That helps. And then are the in-person, are they all, in, or excuse me, is the, for the follow-ups, are they all in person? All virtual. The follow-ups are all virtual too. So yeah. you're meeting patients for the first time when they come in for the retrieval in yeah. most cases. What do you lose with that, if anything? Uh, I don't think anything. I think patients love it. I think everyone's really busy. I think they love the ability to talk when they want at their convenience in the comfort of their home. Um, I think it gives them a lot of flexibility. Um, I don't, I've never had a patient say, I wanted to see you in person before this retrieval. I always get, I'm so glad to meet you. So happy to meet you, but I never had anyone say, I wish I would have met you sooner. I think about this a lot that over the course of my career, I have both paid and been paid millions of dollars by from people that I've never met in person before. And I don't think it would be possible if they didn't already know me in some way, if it wasn't from the content that I've created, or maybe they've seen me speak or, uh, and for the folks that I'm hiring that I'm paying, if I didn't know something about them, and at at the very least, if I wasn't able to see them on video, I don't think it would be the same if it were if I were interviewing people on the phone. Uh, I I always say that in person is the best, but video is the the second best. So I think a lot of people are going to hear this and they're going to think, no way I have to see my patients for that first visit in person or second person, or I won't have that rapport with them. And I think they could be right because they don't have what you have in terms of how many times you've connected with patients on social media by how many videos they've watched of you, how many reels they've watched of you, how many pictures they've seen, how many long posts they've, they've seen from you. Could you do this in your view, all virtual, if you didn't have that rapport built um, up front? I don't think so. I don't think I, my volume would be my volume without having that rapport. I think- not even the, not even the volume, but could you, could you have the same level of engagement from your patients from just a virtual new visit and just a virtual follow-up if they weren't already really familiar with you? I think so. I think there's practices. Let's use CCRM, for example, or another big practice where people would fly in and they don't know the doctor. They've never met them. That's a Zoom console and they fly in to start treatment. Um, I think it's very, or New York has another center that does that. I think I think when it comes to fertility, people just want to go to a place where you're cared for and it works. So I don't think that, you know, I've had patients say, I didn't like the doctor, but I love what they did. So I will stay, I'm going to go there. Um, so I, I do think it's a piece of the pie, but I don't think you absolutely need an in-person when it comes to fertility. Um, right. It's, it goes so fast. It's like tearing off a bandit. It's 10 days of your life that you don't like, I didn't even know when I started or stopped most of my cycles. Let's talk about Tetrising your schedule a little bit that you figured out during the pandemic. Well, how do I move things around to make this more effective? Now, if you're going in every time and saying, well, I just had a Friday afternoon open up now, call center, go ahead and find uh, people that are on the wait list that can come in earlier. If you're doing that every time, that'll be inefficient. So I assume that you've given some rules to your schedulers to that. If this, then 
book this? What are those rules? Yeah. So I started using, I identified a person that really knows me well and knows my schedule and what I do. I started putting a lot of my personal stuff on there as well. So if there's an open area and there's nothing personal as well as patients, then they know, okay, that's a green light to add stuff on. Many doctors, whenever there is a suggested process improvement or a new technology or an increase in volume, many doctors worry about the sacrifice of the quality of care. And, and so it, I, I imagine that a doctor that is doing 250 retrievals a year and maybe seeing 500 new patients a year is thinking 600 new patients and 1300 retrievals. There's no way that something doesn't get lost in translation. There's no way that someone can give that uh, level of attention to the patient. Something's being lost. Something's going to go wrong. Some quality is being sacrificed. What quality do you expect they, that they expect might be sacrificed? And how do you know it isn't? So if you, if you expect to, if you try to take a square and fit it in a circle, it's not going to work, right? If you say, this is my boxed approach. This is how I practice. Nurses aren't allowed to contact me. Patients aren't allowed to contact me. You have to wait for your next appointment to follow up. Then you're going to fit that box. But if you want to think outside of the box and you want to do something revolutionary, um, then you practice outside of the box medicine. So nurses know it's an open door policy. They Their interests align with your interests, which is optimal patient care. Your patients know that you understand their goals, their family goals, their short-term goals, their long-term goals, and their timelines. And then they know you're rooting for them. There's not one single patient that's delivered pregnant that I still don't touch. It's not, I'm going to do your retrieval and be done. It's, you're a forever part of my life. Like, you're very intimately connected to me. My patients whose babies are five, six-year-olds still follow me on Instagram and send me pictures. So, it, it is a relationship. So what I vest in, um, I think, I don't think comp- quality is being compromised. I think quite the opposite. I think this was way better care than I've received up until I saw Angie. But, you know, that that's one of the main reasons I switched so many clinics with my son. It was I wasn't getting the answers or the treatment or the follow-ups that I really felt like I needed. And that's something I promised myself that I would never do to a patient. And I'm this only started because I wanted to hold true to my promise that I don't want someone to feel like me. And I will let the folks know we've worked with groups of all sizes. We worked with 40 doc groups before. We worked with single practitioner groups. And I have to tell you, from doing people's reputation management, it don't matter what size the practices on average or what kind of volumes they're doing. I have seen small practices get reviews like it's a baby factory in there. All they care about is money. They just pack the waiting room. It's like, man, they, I, they're not doing that much volume compared to another place. And I recall seeing a presentation. I wish that I could remember the date of anyone was at the SREI meeting. It was probably 2017 that I spoke at the SREI retreat, whoever was there, I remember sitting next to 
Dr. Lou Exine. So Lou, if you still listen to the show and you remember where this data came from, please let me know. But it showed the number of complaints or the level of patient satisfaction per volume, and there was kind of a J curve. So there was a higher level of satisfaction among smaller boutique practices. And then it bottomed out for a bit for those that were in the middle size, like let's say five to 10 providers. And then it went up as the group got larger. And it's partly because, well, if you're, if you're real small there, you can get away with not having a lot of efficient processes because it's very intimate. It's just you, people often understand. And if you're larger, you should have really established systems like the ones that you're talking about. And it's the people in the middle at the bottom of that J curve that often have lower patient satisfaction because they're not boutique and they don't have the systems. I'd agree with that. So while we're on the topic of growing pains for those that are growing into that larger group or more efficient or having systems, you're a person that I bet all of the AI companies and everyone else wants to talk to because if you could if you could see even more patients with the level of care that you're giving them I know that you would what do you view as the biggest bottlenecks like what do you think when you're going through your week it's like if I could just automate this or eliminate this or delegate this what are the biggest bottlenecks that you see I'm right now I wish I could I, there is a way to notify when the patient's next period is and to make sure that follow-up consult was sooner. I feel like right now I'm hitting it right where their cycle is and then getting the meds and starting their cycle is delayed by a week or so. But if I could find out how after, cause I can do it up until workup, but then from workup to treatment is when they're out of my control and they go to the nurses. So Either I work on teaching my nurses thing, make sure that they see me before um, their next period so I can talk treatment to them well in advance so then they have time to refill their meds, sit on it, think about it, do consents, or AI to say, okay, you know, like based on when they're putting in their LMP and how often they're getting their cycle, then this is when their treatment, anticipated treatment date should be and they need to follow up well before then. Um that would be awesome. But that's my bottleneck currently. I'm going to let you conclude. And I will preface it with saying this because people usually like that I ask tough questions on the show. I feel like I've been tough enough with you, making you prove that nothing's being sacrificed, at least to the extent that I can ask some a clinician, of course, could probably grill you harder. I'm not a clinician, guys. Sorry, I can't I can't grill harder. I've asked, how do you know nothing's being sacrificed? How do you know that you're actually giving the quality of care? I'm satisfied with the answers. And if anybody watches the British Bake Off, Great British Baking Show, I think it's has to be called in the US now, the judge, Paul Hollywood, occasionally gives a handshake to one of the contestants. And it's like the biggest status because he doesn't usually do it and he's normally pretty hard. I would rather be, if, if I had to be perceived as one, I would rather be perceived as being more skeptical than somebody that likes to woo. I will say this though, Rui, you impressed the 
crap out of me. I have known for a long time that you're really smart. I've known for a long time that you have a new and better dynamic for patient relations. I've known for a long time that you have a crazy work ethic. And it's probably because of those three things that I am satisfied with the explanation that I've gotten today on the fourth. But now I know that you are also an operational mastermind. And (laughs) And I think it's really useful for those that even if it's like, man, I don't even want to see 600 new patients or I, I, or AI will decide how many new patients that you're going to be able to see within a certain time frame to some degree and all of the technologies that come, but people will say, well, I, yeah, but I don't want to work 80 hours a week or whatever. And it's like, okay, that's fine. But think about how much more you can do effectively, even with the volumes that you do want to do in the time that you want to do. And be able to give this quality of care. Some people are going to say, I knew that stuff already. I doubt it. I doubt you knew every little piece of that. You've been so generous today with the level of information. I hope it, I hope your employers don't get pissed off about it because you were, you really gave valuable information. They should thank you because of, uh, the marketing that it's giving you all. And, uh, and you've been so generous with it. So I'm going to let you decide how, how do you want to conclude about uh, being able to see as many new patients and, and, and provide treatment for as many patients as possible without sacrificing patient attention or quality of care? Um, first, I want to say thank you. That was a lot. I'm very flattered. So honestly, thank you. Um, I think I practice with my heart and try to do what's best and everything else kind of follows suit. Um, So that's why I can confidently say I'm not compromising any patient care. I have my my nurses tease that you have your patients memorized. I do have my patients memorized because I'm just as vested in them and their family as, um, you know, they trust me with that. It's a very intimate process to be trusted with. So I think just genuinely caring really optimizes everything. That's, I know it's hard. I know everyone out here cares, right? Everyone did this for a reason. No one went to school for 15 years for fun. Um, and I think just remembering why you did this really helps me keep going every day. Dr. Rui Jelani, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.